So if you have your, your Bible with you, I would encourage you to, to turn to the book of Luke. And we'll, we're finishing up chapter 18 today. And so if you've been tracking in this chapter, one of the big themes here has been um, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and what it looks like to come before him, not in our own pride, not bringing our own works, our own achievements, uh, but coming humbly to receive his mercy. And today, uh, if you are looking at the, the passage before you, this is also printed in your bulletin if you didn't bring a, a Bible with you, you'll see that we actually have two individual stories here. We'll be looking and focusing primarily on the, the second, drawing in the, um, the first, but it's speaking to the same theme of the mercy of our Lord Jesus. So listen as I read Luke 18, beginning in verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. And as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front, rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that through this passage we could also give praise to you, that we could glorify you, that we could follow Jesus. And so we pray that, that you could teach us the lessons we need to learn here, that you would help me, Father, not to say anything that is untrue or inaccurate. Um, I pray that I wouldn't go beyond what is written, that I could represent your word truly, and that you would guide all of us uh, to not only understand with our minds, but to actually experience the power of our Lord Jesus today. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. 
So I think that as we reflect on what it is to have knowledge about something, I mean, we, we all know things about different things, you could say. Uh, but sometimes we can have a theoretical knowledge about something. And then sometimes we can have a, a practical experiential knowledge where we've actually experienced the thing itself. And one of my favorite pastors and, and theologians is Jonathan Edwards uh, in the 1700s helped uh, lead the, the first great awakening in America. And he used this helpful illustration of this where he, he talked about hunting and said that somebody can have this theoretical, intellectual knowledge of hunting. So you could, you could describe what it looks like, you could describe its color, you could describe how sticky it is, how it behaves when it's hot or cold, how it changes over time, how exactly it comes from bees. Uh, you could be a theoretical expert on honey without ever tasting it, without actually having it touch your tongue. And though you could know a certain kind of uh, information about honey by just studying it, there's something very different about actually tasting it and tasting its sweetness. And there are people who have actually tasted honey who maybe wouldn't have as much theoretical knowledge of it as somebody who had studied it for a long time but never tasted it. But, but ultimately what we want is not just to know about honey, but we actually want to taste it. We want to taste the, the sweetness. And it's really the same when we consider the knowledge of God, the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That it's possible to have a theoretical head knowledge of Jesus, where we, we know the Bible, maybe we grew up in church, we've, we've heard the gospel story, and so we can claim to, to know a lot about religion. We can claim to know a lot about Jesus. We can claim to actually be Christians without experiencing Jesus Christ for ourselves, without actually seeing and tasting that he has, is good and without actually knowing the experience of having faith in the Lord Jesus. And maybe that's even where some of you are today, where you, you know a lot about the Bible. You have been to church. Uh, you're either watching it or in church today, but yet you, you know a lot in your head. You have this theoretical head knowledge but you don't actually have a practical, experiential knowledge of Christ. You've never seen and tasted that he's good. You've never experienced his power practically brought to bear in your life. And so we need then to, to ask a very important question, how can we experience, actually truly experience and know the power of Jesus in our lives? And that's what we see here in our text, that we see three answers to that question, three means of actually knowing and experiencing Jesus. And we'll look at these individually. So first, we experience the power of Christ by seeing our own blind condition. And that's what we see here from this man in our text in verse 18. It says that as Jesus drew near to Jericho. A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth, 
is passing by. And so as obvious as it is to say, this man knew his problem. He knew his blind condition. And that's why he was begging beside the road. That's why when he heard a crowd going by, he asked what was going on. It's why when he found out that it was Jesus passing by, he cried out for mercy. He knew he was blind. He saw his deep need. But according to the Bible, there's actually another kind of blindness. And it's not just a physical blindness, but actually a spiritual blindness, where we're actually unable to see spiritual reality for what it is. And ironically, that's what we see in verse 34 from the disciples. If you look back in our text, Jesus is is taking the, the 12 disciples aside And he's predicting his own death and resurrection. He's saying, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And Jesus did this several times in his ministry. And it's very significant that Jesus saw this as central to his journey to Jerusalem, that he didn't just come as a a good moral teacher to show us how to work our way up to God, but he came as the suffering servant to lay his life down for our sins. But as Jesus presents it clearly, The disciples don't get it. Look again at verse 34. It says that they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And so here, they are actually the blind ones in some ways. They're the the spiritually blind people who are unable to see what Jesus is saying. Eventually they get it, but here they don't. They don't have eyes to see. And, of course, we could easily pick on the disciples, and that can be fun because they're often clueless and don't get a lot at first. But we know, as we look at the Bible, that we actually all start off spiritually blind by nature. In John 12, verse 39 we read this about people who rejected Jesus. It says that they could not believe. They were unable to believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. And so there, John isn't talking about physical blindness. But he's saying that these people were unable to believe because of spiritual blindness. And he says that God himself has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. I'm drawing from Isaiah 6. But then we see it from a a different perspective from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. And he says, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. So here it's speaking of Satan blinding the eye of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Or Paul presents it then from the opposite perspective of of somebody in Ephesians 1.18. He talks about people having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so again, he's not talking about having physical eyes enlightened to see the glory of Christ, but he's talking about spiritual eyes, this 
dispelling of spiritual blindness to see the kingdom of heaven. And that's why in John chapter 3, as Jesus is having his conversation with Nicodemus, he says that, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That it's actually impossible to even see the kingdom of God without the work of regeneration, without being born again, brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. Because we start off spiritually blind by nature. And that's why in John chapter 9, uh, after Jesus healed a different blind man of his physical blindness, he, Jesus says this, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And then listen, the Pharisees, as they were listening to him, knew that he was talking about a a different kind of blindness here. And so it says in verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And so you see what Jesus is saying there, that, that these religious leaders are saying, we're the good people, we're the moral people, we're the people who have knowledge, this theoretical head knowledge of the Bible more than, than anyone else. We're not blind. We have great spiritual sight. And then Jesus says that actually your guilt remains still. And the reason for that is because they didn't admit their blindness. He says, because you say, I see, your guilt remains. And so what he's, what he's getting at there is that the first step was actually admitting their spiritual blindness by nature so that they would call out to Christ for mercy. And of course, that's true in lots of areas of life, that the, the first step to solving a problem is admitting that there is a problem. And then it's the same spiritually, that, that if we are unwilling to see the problem, if we don't recognize our spiritual blindness, if we think we have this great spiritual insight by nature, then actually... We're in a position where we'll never cry out to God for mercy. We'll never actually see him address the spiritual problem in our life, that we'll never experience the, the power of Jesus brought to bear in our lives. And again, that's our, our first point from the text here, that we experience the power of Christ by seeing our own blind condition, our need for Jesus. But then second, we can experience the power of Christ by seeing the mercy of Christ. And look at verse 28 in our text from Luke. This blind man cries out and he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And, his, and those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy mercy on me. And so yes, that the first step in solving a problem is admitting that there is a problem, but the blind man here didn't just stop with his problem. He didn't just say, well, I'm blind, I guess there's nothing I can do about it. But he actually cries out for mercy to Jesus. And it's really fascinating that, that it seems like he had some sort of 
theoretical knowledge of Jesus before he actually experienced his power. That, that he knew something of Christ's identity. He knew his reputation for healing. He knew his reputation for being merciful. He even calls him son of David. Um, that's speaking to his messianic identity, that, that this is the Messiah who is coming before him, son of David, have mercy on me. So he knows a lot about Jesus in his head. And I think that that's also true for us sometimes, that before we cry out for Jesus, we know a certain amount about him. We know his claims. We know the reputation of Jesus for being merciful, for, for saving those who are in dire situations. But then we wonder, is it actually true? Is this just theoretical head knowledge, or can it actually become true heart, experiential knowledge? And thankfully for this man here in our text, he didn't just stay with the head knowledge of knowing about Jesus, but what he had heard about him drove him to cry out to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus responds, look at verse 40. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And so you can see that the mercy of Jesus just shining from these verses that the man is crying out, and it says that Jesus stopped, that he, he listened to the man crying out. And that's also what Jesus does for us, that when we cry out for mercy, hoping that the things that we've heard about him are true, that, that he stops, that he hears our cry. And then when the man was actually powerless to come to Jesus by his own strength, it says that Jesus commanded others to bring him forward. And that's also what Jesus does for us, that when we are powerless in ourselves, crying out for mercy, unable to come to him, that, that he puts other people in our life who, who guide us to Jesus. He gives us the church. He gives us community. He, he draws us to himself by his mercy. And then as we lay out our requests before him, he responds. He, he hears and he heals. And that we can go then from this, this theoretical knowledge to this deep experiential, practical knowledge of Christ. And so today, if you want this experiential knowledge of, of Jesus, to know his healing power, then it's what we were saying in that, the first point, right? That knowing in ourselves our need, our spiritual blindness, that we need to cry out for mercy. And then knowing that Jesus is merciful, listening to what the scriptures, to what others say about Christ, and then actually crying out to him in prayer, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, and that he is faithful, he does respond. And that's actually why he came into the world. I mean, in the first part of our text, he predicts his own suffering and his own death, his own resurrection, and he did all of those things. He went to the cross, was handed over to the Gentiles, so that he could actually have mercy on people who are spiritually blind, so that he could save us, so that he could redeem us, so that he could renew us and, and change us, that we can come to him, and that he saves us by his grace and mercy as we put our trust and our faith in him. 
And so that's the, the second point then from this text, that we experience the power of Christ by seeing the mercy of Christ. But then third and finally, we can experience the power of Christ by seeing our calling as believers. Look at verse 34. And immediately the blind man recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And so for this man, his experience practically of the power of Jesus in his life to change him was not the end of the journey, but it's actually the beginning of his journey. That it's at that point, after experiencing the power of Christ, that it says he begins to follow Christ, glorifying God. Now, some of you may have heard of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, um, and it's a way that has been used to summarize the main priorities of the Protestant Reformation, and it's grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, God's glory alone. And if you were to put it in a sentence, it's that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, as we know from scripture alone. And remarkably, we see these five soul laws here in our text. We see scripture alone because we're reading of it in scripture. We know of this only from the Bible. But then he was saved by grace alone because he didn't go out and perform some good work to be healed, some great religious ceremony. God isn't rewarding him for his goodness here and healing them that it is grace. It's a gift. And then he was saved by faith alone because Jesus says, your faith has made you well. That that is the, what united him to Christ, the channel by which he experiences the healing power of Jesus in his life. And of course, he was saved by Christ alone because he wasn't crying out to anyone else, to any other person. There was no mediator between him and Christ that he came directly to Jesus. Jesus healed him directly, that we're saved by Christ alone. But then finally, we see that it was for God's glory alone, that that was the outcome. Because in, in verse 34, as I said, it says that he followed Jesus, glorifying God, that that is what flows out of this healing experience of Christ's power in his life. And so for you and me, when we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then our response to that experience is to follow Christ, to glorify God. And we follow Jesus as we give ourselves to, to prayer and the study of the word, as we give ourselves to the, the worship of the church, to the fellowship of, of believers, as we, we recognize that we can't just live however we want, that we look to the, the moral commands of Scripture, that we give up our own time, our own money. We give up our own sense of our, our space, that we invite others into our life. We seek to show hospitality. We serve the weak, the marginalized, those who are in dire straits. And we do this not to earn our salvation, but in order to follow Jesus, to glorify him as a response 
to this healing power in our life, to this experience of his grace that he poured forth through Jesus by the Spirit in our lives. And remarkably, it's this response of, of glorifying God, following Christ, that actually has an evangelistic impact on those around us. Because you'll notice here in our text that it says that, that people around him, that all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And this is true for us as well. That, that when we go to our neighbor, when we think about the Great Commission of, of making disciples of all nations, we don't go with just an abstract truth. We don't just proclaim some unmoved mover out there, some impersonal force, some impersonal God. And we don't go to our, our neighbors saying, you know, we're really a lot smarter and a lot better because we've put the pieces and figured this out. And so you need to put the pieces and figure this out in the way that I put the pieces together and figure it out. But what we say is actually, no, look at what I have experienced. And that's what we sing in the song Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see that I have experienced the grace and the mercy of Jesus in my life by grace alone, through faith alone. And, and so I'm, I'm here not because I'm better, not because I've figured it out, not with some intellectual head knowledge, but an experiential knowledge. And that thankfully it's not just my subjective experience that's confirmed in other objective ways, but yet we come on the basis to others of what we have experienced. And I think that when people see that, when they hear that, when they see the impact of the gospel in our lives, when they see us following Jesus, seeking to glorify God in all that we do, it actually leads people to pay attention, to ask why, what is going on here? Is this something that I can experience as well? And maybe that's what some of you are asking today. You're wondering, can I experience the power of Jesus in my life? And maybe you've been at the place where you, you didn't see your spiritual need, but now you see it. Maybe you've been at the place where you've heard about Jesus, you've heard about his mercy, but you've never actually cried out to him for mercy. Maybe you've been in the place of claiming to be a believer, but not following Jesus, not seeking to glorify him in everything, um, maybe indicating that you haven't actually turned to him in faith. But the great promise of the scriptures for each and every one of us here today is that we can truly experience Christ. We can experience a real relationship with the Lord Jesus. And it's not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not by relying on ourselves, but admitting our sin, repenting, turning to Jesus, trusting in him. As we look to him, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the glorious promise of your, of your word that us people, these blind, weak, sinful people who so often fall short of your glory, that we don't have to just rely on a theoretical head knowledge of who you are and what you have done, but that you promise to change us, to renew us as we repent and trust in Jesus. 
We thank you that we can have a true personal relationship with you as our Father through Christ, that we can cry out, Abba, Father, and that even though you don't promise to take away all of our suffering, all of our pain, all of our sickness in this life, we thank you for the true hope and the promise of the restoration that is ours in Christ, that what we have experienced already of your power and of your love and of your mercy is nothing compared to what we will experience. And Lord, we think of this man here in our text even who had faith in you to be healed physically, but we know that he died eventually. But because of his faith, he had hope of resurrection life ultimately in you, and, and that's where we fix our hope. Now, not in our own spiritual sight and of ourselves, but we pray that you would cause us to be born again, that you would change us, that we could see the kingdom of God be renewed after your image. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen.